9 to 13 today. It seems that Jesus has come to be considered so establishment in our thinking. So much that we may fail to hear the radical impact of his life and ministry. I don't mean radical like a terrorist, but radical in that his word and his life cut across all our old religious norms. When the church has become comfortable with a predictable Jesus, we need to consider a text like we have this morning. Let me read it. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Who does your teacher? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the wicked. This is a pretty brief account, not as brief as Mark's account, which is about half that long. Nonetheless, it holds, I think, three truths that we ought to get a hold of this morning. The first is this. When Jesus calls, get up and follow. When Jesus calls, get up and follow him. We tend to admire people in our culture who can kind of keep their religion in its place in their life, maintaining balance in all of these things and not letting it get too out of hand is considered a virtue in our day. But Matthew makes no attempt to tame this account of his own conversion. The very first thing we notice is his immediate and total response to Jesus' call. Jesus saw him sitting in the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed. Now, this does not necessarily mean that Matthew had never never heard of Jesus before. Matthew was the tax collector. And we know from extra biblical accounts that one of the taxes was a fish tax. Well, four of Jesus' disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, were fishermen in this same area, in Capernaum, where Matthew lived and worked. Matthew probably knew them. They probably knew him. Plus, Matthew was a man who dealt with the public. It's almost inconceivable that he had never heard of this Jesus who had healed many, many people in Capernaum. Remember the night when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then they kept bringing him, everyone, all throughout the evening, and healed them. This Jesus who had spoken with such unusual authority. This Jesus who just a few days ago had stilled a violent uh, storm on the, on the Sea of Galilee. It's just about inconceivable that Matthew had never heard of this Jesus. <clears throat> but no matter how much he knew, no matter how many times he had seen Jesus, the day came that Jesus stopped right in front of him as he was working. And he said, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew, who's also called Levi, stopped what he was doing 
got up and followed Jesus for the rest of his life. No matter how much he knew before, his response to Jesus' call was a radical, total response. William Lane writes, what was remembered about this incident in the early church was the brevity and urgency of Jesus' summons and the radical obedience demonstrated in Levi's dramatic response. Abandoning all other concerns, he arose and followed Jesus. And Luke makes a point of the fact that he left everything. His position, his job, his income, he left everything to follow Jesus. But is this not the pattern we find throughout the New Testament? Back in Matthew 4, we met two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were fishermen, and they're cleaning their nets on the, on the beach there in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus walks up, and he says, you follow me. And they left their nets, and they left their fishing business in somebody else's hands, and they followed him. Years later, when the risen Jesus in a blinding light confronted Saul of Tarsus as he went about persecuting Jesus' disciples, Saul's response was, who are you, Lord? To which Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and, 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 and wait until, uh, until you're told what to do. And Saul got up and went into Damascus to wait for instruction. Again and again, when Jesus called, people got up and followed Folks, Jesus is still calling people. And immediate radical compliance is what he expects. Of course, we always like to make, play, let's make a deal with God. We want to go, negotiate the terms under which we will follow him. We, we want to hear the details of what it is he's calling us to do and what it's going to cost us. But God doesn't have to explain for what or for how long he's calling us. When you know it is God who is calling you, that's all you need to know. He has a right to lay claim to your life. Your response is simple. When Jesus calls, you get up and follow him. You may argue, well, there are too many complications for us to just follow Jesus. Folks, Matthew was no different from you. He also had commitments. He was at work when Jesus called him. He had friends. We'll see that in a minute about his friends. And with friends comes peer pressure. We all know that. He had allegiances. In fact, he had scary allegiances. He was in alliance with the Roman occupying forces. And he had a successful career. People hated tax collectors, but they made pretty good money. But when Jesus got up, when Jesus called him, he got up and he followed Jesus. And today, Jesus still has the same authority to call you in absolute terms, to follow him, to change your commitments, to reorder your priorities, to rearrange your whole life in order to conform it to his will and his plans. And when he calls, your job is to get up and follow him. You may wonder, well, how will I know if if it's Jesus calling me? You will know. You will know. Though you cannot see him or hear his voice in your ears, He will make his call clear, whether his call is to repent and trust him to save you, or whether his call is to leave everything and go serve him somewhere. He will make sure you know. You just make sure you follow. 
That's the first point. Second truth here is that Jesus loves undeserving sinners. Jesus loves undeserving sinners. We have this image of God's calling which suggests that when Jesus calls someone, he immediately snatches us out of our life and our whole element and all of our friends and all of our surroundings. But that's not what we see here. Jesus did not just call Matthew to leave tax collecting and follow him. Jesus also involved himself in Matthew's life, sitting down to eat in Matthew's house with Matthew's friends, with his co-workers, tax collectors, and such. It's almost like Jesus actually cared about that kind of people. Make no mistake, the tax collectors were a wretched bunch. We're generally not fond of the IRS, but few of us very often think of those public servants as criminals. Much different in Jesus' day. The hostility toward tax collectors was well-deserved. These tax collectors were not public servants. They were opportunists. The Romans sold the right to collect taxes to Jewish citizens who were willing to associate themselves with the Romans. So the Romans demanded from these tax collectors a fixed rate amount of tax. But the tax collectors were free to charge whatever they wanted and pocket the difference, which generally turned the tax collectors into turncoat thieves. William Barclay gives us a little feel for the oppressive tax structure that they used. He said there were three main statutory taxes. First, a, gr a ground tax of a tenth of the grain and a fifth of all the fruit and produce. Secondly, an income tax of 1% of a person's income. And third, a poll tax imposed on all males aged 14 to 65 and all females aged 12 to 65. In addition, however, the collectors grew rich by overcharging uh, uh, on many other taxes, uh, a duty tax of two and a half to twelve and a half percent on all goods going and coming out of town. There were taxes for using the main roads. There were taxes for crossing bridges. There were taxes for entering the market. There were taxes for using the harbor. There were taxes on pack animals. There were taxes on the wheels and the number of axles on your wagon. So William Lane's description of the tax collectors makes sense. He writes, when a Jew entered the customs service, became a tax collector, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended even to his family. These are not the people you would have had over for lunch. But here's Jesus, seemingly enjoying their company, as if he actually liked them. Well, needless to say, the Pharisees were scandalized. You know about the Pharisees, right? They're the ones who tithed everything that they owned down to the mint and the herbs that they used in cooking. They meticulously washed every uh, utensil, making it not just clean, but ceremonially unclean. They not only kept themselves separate from sinners and Gentiles, 
refusing to even eat with a sinner or with a Gentile. Uh, they even refused to associate with other Jews who did not separate themselves enough. We call that second, third degree separation. Their greatest concern, these Pharisees, was the preservation of their own holiness. Meanwhile, here's Jesus and his disciples eating with the unwashed, eating a meal with no apparent concern for ceremonial, ceremonial cleanness. Pharisees probably assumed that Jesus' actions indicated that he wanted to be like these sinners. He wanted to share their sin. I mean, why else would Jesus or his disciples do this? Pharisees wanted to know. They asked his disciples, why? But Jesus didn't wait for his disciples. He answered them. And he answered them with a bit of homespun godly wisdom. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's why. I once knew a flight surgeon. That's the doctor who takes care of Air Force pilots. One day in exasperation, he told me how he hated his job. He said, I went through medical school, an internship, a residency, years and years of training so that I could diagnose and treat diseases which are killing people. And what did they have me doing? They had me filling out paper to vouch for the perfect health of the healthiest one-tenth of one percent of the population. I am a doctor, he said. Bring me some sick people. And so Jesus who left the glory of heaven to come and give himself to save sinners, is not content to hang out with Jewish Pharisees or Christian Pharisees. No, as Jesus says elsewhere, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to give my life as a ransom for sinners. Jesus loved the unlovely the undeserving, the broken, the unclean. Jesus loves sinners enough to save them. And Matthew, in writing this account, seems to delight in identifying himself with this group of unclean sinners. They're in his house. They're tax collectors like he was. These are his friends, apparently. In his commentary on this passage, uh, Jim Boyce writes, Matthew is doing in his narrative what the great Dutch painter Rembrandt did in one of his most famous paintings of the crucifixion. It's called Raising the Cross. Rembrandt portrayed all the characters one would expect in that scene. Jesus, the two thieves, the soldiers, the large crowd of onlookers. But down by the foot of the cross, Rembrandt paints a portrait of himself as one who shared the guilt of crucifying Jesus. Rembrandt, the artist, Matthew, the writer, both identified themselves as sinners who rested on the grace extended to them by Jesus, for they understood that Jesus loves undeserving sinners. Do you know that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? 
Well, if so, then abandon your pretense of self-righteousness and come to Jesus asking him to save you and renew you. And as you come rest, you're hoping his promises, great promises. Here's one. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or another, Jesus says, come to me. Oh, you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Or another, whoever calls on me, Jesus says, I will, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Finally, third point. Show mercy like Jesus did. Show mercy like Jesus did. In the very last verse of this text, verse 13, Jesus doesn't just defend his association with sinners. He sends the self-righteous Pharisees back to school. Specifically, specifically, Jesus challenges them, you need to go and study Hosea 6.6, where the Lord said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He was instructing them to deal with those tax collectors and sinners the same way God had dealt with him. So how had God dealt with his people in the past? Well, Hosea 6.6 says that God had shown them his hesed, You've heard me talk about that word lot, the, uh, a lot. The word mercy in the New Testament is most often a translation of that familiar Old Testament word chesed. My theological dictionary of the New Testament explains the use of that word this way. It says God's chesed is his faithful and merciful love which he promised. Yet because we are unfaithful, this love takes the form of pardoning grace. So Jesus was reminding these Pharisees that everything Israel had ever had, everything you've ever enjoyed from God's hand, you got from the Lord's mercy. And if these Jewish leaders had really comprehended that, they would be showing mercy to these undeserving sinners rather than demanding their compliance with the ceremonial law. That's the same exact point Jesus made later in a parable that told about the unmerciful servant. When the servant who had been forgiven so much, massive amounts, refused to show mercy to a fellow servant who owed him a little bit, the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Jesus was reminding these Bible teachers that ultimately the only hope we have is God's mercy. And if you have no hope but mercy, perhaps you ought to be more merciful yourself. As Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Show mercy like Jesus did. Brothers and sisters, we who treasure the theology coming out of the Protestant Reformation, which is a a, a gem, it's wonderful truths. We are experts in grace in this theological circle. We, we, We know about God's grace in electing depraved sinners who had no claim on God. We know about the grace of Jesus 
substitutionary atonement. We know about grace so powerful, it's irresistible, so enduring that it will preserve to the end. Oh, we know about grace. But I'm afraid that though we know the theology of grace, perhaps better than most Christians, we have a lot to learn about showing grace to other sinners like ourselves, even to one another. Perhaps we too need to ponder Hosea 6.6 and learn, show mercy to others like Jesus showed mercy to you. Three truths from this little passage. First, we learn that when Jesus calls, our responsibility is to get up and follow him. That's what Matthew did. Secondly, we learn that Jesus loves undeserving sinners like Matthew and Matthew's friends and me. And finally, we learn to show mercy like Jesus did. For God has so shown mercy on us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for teaching us about what you might be doing with us as you teach us what you were doing with Matthew and his friends. Frankly, Father, as we read accounts like this, we we're honest with ourselves, may find that we have more in common with the Pharisees than we do the uh, undeserving sinners. And certainly, Lord, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're righteous enough to deserve your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and grace. Father, teach us the things that you set before us in this text as we meditate and bring them to mind change our way of thinking, change our understanding of what it means to follow you, to love one another, to show mercy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.